Hi there, I'm Richard Hurley, the BMJ's Features and Debates Editor, and today I'm joined by Margaret McCartney, a Glasgow GP, writer, broadcaster, and the BMJ's weekly columnist. Margaret's third book has just hit the shelves, The State of Medicine, a call for a non-politicised, evidence-based NHS as a way to save it. Margaret, you say you're furious, sad and scared for the state of the NHS. Why is that? Well, look at the headlines, I suppose, every day we get more and more news about the funding crisis. It's just this black hole that we just seem to be sort of falling into. And I and I genuinely don't think that most people know what's going on. You know, all the cost efficiency savings that could be made without affecting patient care have already been done. And the problem is now that all the cost savings that are happening are affecting frontline care, frontline staff. And that's a really big problem for patients that are needing care. So you say you say in your book that the banks were too important to fail, but the NHS is being allowed to. So you see this as, in some ways, a deliberate uh, attempt to run the NHS down. Well, I do really, and I'm I'm really concerned that that, that all the signs are there. You know, there, there's people from all kinds of agencies that don't normally get involved with with talking about the NHS being in crisis. You know, the GMC, the CQC, the colleges, who are all coming and saying actually we have a really big problem here. And for I think too long we keep blaming individuals for getting things wrong in the NHS. And there is a role for you know people do do things wrong. Human beings work in the NHS and get things wrong. It's it's going to happen. But if you're systematically under underfunding, understaffing, overstretching, putting false targets in place, asking people to do things that there just is not the resources to do. Not only will they fail patients, but they'll fail themselves. And when morale starts to go, that kind of thing can be lost forever. People leave the service. And when you lose the humanity, the human vocation that really drives a service like the NHS, you really do have a massive problem because some of that may never be got back. And, and I do think there is a big, bigger political agenda here. I do think we're hearing continual um, cries now, oh, the NHS, you know, we need to go to an insurance-based service or we need to start charging people for GP appointments. These kind of things, once they get in, will just accelerate forward and they will benefit people who are already the best off. They will not get a benefit to the people who are already going to be at a bigger risk or are going to die younger. So we really have to think very carefully about what are the founding principles of the NHS and how do we best achieve them. And are you seeing these problems in your own practice? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I started off in general practice when people with type two diabetes and high blood pressure were managed mainly in the hospital. You know, that that all happened somewhere else. We um, got only involved very peripherally, and um, th- so there's, there's been a huge shift, I think, of care from hospitals into primary care, and much of that has been good, but almost all of it has been unresourced. And and the problem is that you are doing more and more. I mean, I think there was a report today saying we're doing 10% more appointments than a couple of years ago, and that's fine. I'm really happy to be busy, but there comes a point where you're just too busy and it gets dangerous. You can no longer explore um, why someone's presenting or what their concerns are. You can no longer spend time with someone giving a good explanation, making good shared decisions. You can no longer um, feel, I suppose, that you're giving the good care that you wanted to when you went into start of medicine. And when you get so dissatisfied with your own work, when you feel as though you're not giving as good care as you should, people get burnt out, people get disenfranchised, unhappy, especially when so much of my time, and I'm sure doctors across the country, is spent doing things really of low or no value, but it's delivered by really low value political policies that we've had no hand in making, but have to take the the, the, the downside of, take the side effects of. So does this all come down to money? 
Well, partly, but I, I think it's also a question of what you spend money on. So, for example, the benefit system is now a complete disaster. I mean, the, you have a system now where you're creating huge amounts of stress and distress for people who are disabled and sick. People who are chronically ill, um, no longer is it good enough for your GP to say that you should be off sick or not. Now you have to go through this process, usually run by ATOS, who don't give information about how they make their decisions. Um, People are under huge amounts of um, emotional stress, not knowing what's going to happen to their, their their benefits money. People are unstable in their own homes. They don't know what's going to happen next. And all that kind of stuff comes back to primary care because we have um, we have no ceiling. We have no, um, we, will not, we will not prevent people coming in to talk about that they're upset and their distress. And of course, that, that's absolutely fine. But the problem is that is an inefficient system that was not adequately tested. It's not been adequately reformed. And the fallout of that is means that people's mental health is poorer. We know that there's been an association with an increase in suicide um, and we know that people are consulting more and asking for more forms to be filled, more bureaucratic forms, stuff to be done by GPs. That means there's less appointments for other people. So you have to ask, a system like that that was untested um, has done huge harm to patients, has had an impact on primary care. How could that be have been allowed in the first place and how can that be allowed to continue? So that, that's the kind of thing. I mean, um, health checks, we've got really good evidence that they don't work. Dementia screening, there was always evidence that didn't work even before it started. Um, the Health and Social Care Act, where's the evidence for commissioning? Where's the evidence for all that reorganisation? Where's the evidence for targets? You know, so we had so many targets put in with COAF, thankfully now removed in Scotland, although we wait with bated breath to see what will happen next. But we know there's good evidence that that might have made a small impact on patient care to start off with, but then hasn't made any any improvements. And furthermore, I think, has really driven a kind of deprofessionalisation of medicine, has driven a real tick box approach. And that has meant for doctors like myself, you just don't get the same satisfaction of feeling that I personally am doing a good job for that individual in front of me and that's really damaging to the whole profession. So the the, the crux of your, your argument is that we should have policy-based on evidence? Yeah, I mean, th- I think it's fair enough for um, politicians to say, OK, if you elect us, we will make, say, um, dementia a priority. But then what should happen, I think, is that they should go to academics, go to um, people with dementia, go to families, people with dementia, and say, OK, what are your priorities? What are the things that you would like to see changed? What are the uncertainties? And then how can we how can we move to uh, improve that? So, and, and there's a good model for that. You know, the James Lind Alliance has been working on that for a long time. We've had NICE doing our evidence searches and working at that for a long time. You have an ability to go independently and say, okay, how can we improve this area of care without introducing purely politically motivated policies like targets for reaching dementia diagnoses, giving GPs incentives to make individual diagnoses of dementia to target. This is just a tragedy. It's a professional tragedy. We should never have allowed that to happen. And yet it did. Again, the same for seven day services. That whole agenda became such a politicised nightmare and has created, I think, a generation of junior doctors who are rightly angry and upset about the way that they've been treated professionally wouldn't have been better if the government had said, OK, can you go and find out, do we have a problem with the way that services are delivered over the full seven days? What can we do about it? What are the uncertainties? What are the research questions we need to ask? And how best do we engage the profession in moving forward with that? Now, could you imagine a collaborative approach to sorting out a possible problem would have been so much better and the profession would have came with government rather than ending up in diametric opposition to it? And why, do, why doesn't that happen? Why didn't that happen? 
Well, I'm sure there are lots of different reasons and I'm sure different politicians would have taken different approaches. The problem we have now is that the NHS has become such a political football. It's used as a marker of success or failure in government and it is impossible to do this anymore. It is damaging for everybody. I just think we have to move beyond that and have a more mature, consensus-based, evidence-based way of looking at what we're doing with the NHS. I absolutely think that we should have a democratically elected um, political setup where we we charge people with the priorities and issues that we want to have seen in the NHS uh, you know for example the mental health priority I think that's very good but when it comes down to the minutia of how to do things on the ground we have to have far more respect for the evidence and for the uncertainties that exist otherwise we're just throwing good money after bad and, and fundamentally we're not sorting out the problem that we started off seeing what we're looking at. I mean one of the things you you have a nine point plan in your book for how we can save the NHS is that is that well nine suggestions nine okay. things <laughs> nine, nine, nine things nine things I think we can do I'm not setting myself up as this is like the mecca of a fantastic way forward but I think there there are lots of things that would be reasonably straightforward to do if we were being a bit more mature and grown up about do we want to see the NHS to survive or not and stop seeing it as a political um, you know a political tool to get re-elected and instead saying okay do we want the NHS to survive in 40, 50, 60 years time if so we have to think very differently about the way that we use evidence and the way that we use politics to fund and change it. And the the first of your suggestions is that there should be a barrier between the NHS and the government. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so um, I think what should happen is that no longer should politicians be allowed to think up their great ideas about what the NHS needs to do um, and then go and do it. So, for example, I mean, a, a good example, I think, is dementia screening. The UK National Screening Committee have always been explicitly clear, do not screen the population for dementia because it doesn't work. It's not a good test. It causes overdiagnosis. It causes harms. And of course, when dementia screening came into play, we saw immediately that memory clinics were being um, filled up with people who did not have dementia, while people who actually did have dementia spent longer to actually see an expert. So it's harmful for everyone. Now, wouldn't it have been good if there had been a barrier in place that said, no, this isn't the way to go. But if you want to to look at improving dementia care, let's see what other options we have that are evidence-based. So yeah, I think that you absolutely have to be accountable to your elected representatives, but the elected representatives have to be sensible about the evidence base and should not be allowed to run through it when they have a target in sight that's being purely politically motivated. Do you, I mean, is there, a, is, is there an example of a, a structure that would enable that, that to, to go ahead? Yeah. Is the BBC or something an yeah, example well, of a... Well, even something like um, the NICE um, with the problems that were created with the Cancer Drugs Fund. So we had NICE who were sort of saying, okay, this drug is expensive but worth it. This drug is expensive but not worth it. They were making very difficult value judgments but in as transparent a way as possible. And then the Cancer Drugs Fund was was kind of put in place, I suppose, to try and subvert that process. Now that's now being reversed. Something else is going to be put in place. So I think there are are ways of doing it but they tend to be probably a bit slow. They tend to be probably a bit boring. They don't tend to make for very good headlines they will quite often give an opinion that's not politically um, popular shall we say but you absolutely have to have these checks and balances in place otherwise there is no limit on what we could be spending money on otherwise something else that you suggest in your uh, nine nine suggestions is to repeal the health and social care act yeah Yes. It seems like a recurring theme. Yes, yes. Well, it is a recurring theme. And, and I mean, I'm in Scotland. We don't have that. But all my colleagues in England, um, you know, are just 
the amount of waste. So lawyers' fees and the commissioning process, the time that's been taken away from clinical care in order to do these commissioning, the uncertainty that's created. I have um, colleagues who have been made redundant as a result of commissioning and um, not knowing what's happening to their jobs, especially the jobs that they have built up, um, trained other people for, helped set up in hours and hours of work um, to do that. Um, instability for patients as well who don't know what's happening and of course with STPs now in England there's lots of cuts happening behind closed doors there's no clear transparent process around it it's a it's a real disaster and I think that the Health and Social Care Act has allowed all those things to happen. I mean is there there evidence that this approach is either uh, you know leads to poorer care or less efficient care? Well there was a um, a study done and I think published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine I think this or last year that basically showed either no advantage or slightly worse care and I'm you know I'm sure the staff that work in these setups are are good and doing their best it's a structural problem it's the problem of are you going to be given targets to do um, targets to achieve if you're working to quaff where it might be better to exempt people are there going to be um, are you going to be motivated I suppose by different factors other than the ones you went into medicine for and while you I would never um, doubt the the motivation of staff that are working patient to patient it's when you work in a system that has different priorities from the ones that you would want to put in yourself you do have an issue you do have a problem and we saw that with COF all the targets were put in place I think led many doctors to practice in a different way from what they would have wanted to and what they would want for their patients are we going to, is there any way to reverse this or yeah, are you going well, too t- far? T- take out the health and social care out. That would, right. be, that would be the key, wouldn't it? That would be the key. I mean, in Scotland, we're managing okay. I mean, there, there was huge controversy even when a contract for weight management services went to Weight Watchers. You know, that's how I suppose we're quite, quite vigilant in Scotland. Even that, we know, attracted quite a lot of attention and publicity around it. And this was seen as something that most people didn't want, that, that wasn't the route people wanted to go down. And of course, it's seen by commissioners as a cost-saving thing. So if a private sector company it says they can do something cheaper um, then it's going to be more attractive to commissioners who are having to make huge cuts in their budgets but the problem is where does that saving come from if you're still having to make a profit for that company if that, they're still making a profit where does that come from and inevitably it means less staff or differently trained or less well trained staff doing particular jobs that might be a good thing that might not be a good thing but the problem is that eventually it's going to affect patient care there has to be a point of whereby your cost efficiency savings actually become harmful and there's good evidence out I think in the last couple of weeks that the higher the trained nurse the more effective the better your care is we know that nurse ratios um, affect hugely um, the the care patients get and are associated with increased mortality rates where there's fewer nurses so there there has to come a point where cost saving is no longer just about you know replacing your light bulbs and and having better you know um, sort of more durable equipment it has to be in the end about um, doing things that actually touch on patient care and that's something we really have to be vigilant about and of course with the more and more small or fragmented STPs, it becomes even harder to keep an eye on what's going on. And uh, I mean, uh, and also through um, you know staff contracts, isn't it? Yeah. Mean, that's a, the other way of making savings. Yeah. But that will also impact on morale yeah. and on care ultimately. What was your feeling about the junior doctors' strike? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just feel so vexed for the junior doctors. You know, there was always a kind of moral contract, I think, with the NHS that you worked really hard and you worked well beyond your hours, but the NHS at the end of the day would, would be your home. It would be somewhere that you would be looked after. I grew up in the, the days where, you know, you would get made tea and toast at four o'clock in the morning after your, your two-day shift. You were There was a sense of belonging and of, I suppose, pride in belonging as well. You were part of a team, part of a firm, and it was horrible. I mean, I, I was... A, really stressed junior doctor um, but uh, you know th- 
that I think now has has just gone so much. I think junior doctors are treated almost like commodities and to work a shift, you're in and you're out. Who do you belong to? Who's your team? Who's your people? You know, who's, that- who's looking after you? Is that yeah. the firm structure that's gone that, yeah. that, that has led to that? Yeah, and that, that, I think that held a lot of people together. Certainly it did for me. I, I wouldn't have got through my house office a year if it hadn't been for my colleagues who were um, phenomenally kind and good. Um, and I just feel so much now for the juniors that have been left with this very much, this sort of slightly abandoned sort of shift system, um, left really to work it out for themselves. No, no sense of stability. Told that they must work in the NHS, I think, for four years, as it Jeremy Hunt has said. Otherwise, they'll have to repay their, their student fees or whatever I mean just the wrong attitude you know for a bunch of um, professionals who are already feeling vulnerable and I think just the way that the whole mortality effect was blamed on junior doctors somehow it's so unfair such a misuse of evidence so unkind I think as well to a group of people who are just you know been through their training wanting to do their best you know on the whole I think highly motivated and vocational individuals and just I didn't see any support for them um, from, from our political masters which I I think is so damaging. I think junior doctors will work endlessly if they believe that it's in the interest of patients and good patient care. But we all need to feel as though we're we're liked and loved in some way, I think. And making a whole generation of doctors feel like they're a bit peripheral, except at weekends when they're clearly not working enough, is, is a bad strategy politically and also really bad for morale. And I don't think we talk about the importance of morale enough in the NHS. Is, is there a tipping point when morale gets so bad and the you know the the unspoken contracts between yeah. people and the NHS and between the public and the NHS yeah. as well yeah um there's some tipping point where the whole yeah. thing will yeah. fall yeah. apart what yeah. is your prognosis if things oh, carry no, on as they no, are no well I, I think things well just it'll just slide and I think it'll just be like boiling frogs and that there won't be one big problem there'll just be lots and lots of small problems and then eventually we'll realise that we don't have a proper um, health service anymore um, the, the, the issue I think with with morale is so important and and it's kind of paired to I think what the NHS stands for so we had this NHS that was set up on the basis of need provided to, to everyone on, on the basis of need and that, that is a, I think a truly wonderful thing and all of our political parties I think with the exception of UKIP have backed that ideal and have said that they they, up, they want to uphold the principles of the NHS and so it is more of a question of how we do it and you're right there is this issue about how people use the NHS as well I think we've moved from a, a feeling that it was a shared resource and we should you know we should kind of queue on the basis of need we would let the sicker people go first that's kind of changed I think into a real consumer model where people are being told that unless you shout hard and push yourself forward you won't get the care that you deserve and I think that is quite dangerous because that in turn then means that doctors work more to avoid complaints doctors work more to um, to provide a I suppose a consumer driven experience um, as opposed to um, really high quality patient care based on need first of all and with the idea that it's need that should drive the, the, your care rather than um, how popular you'll be at the end of it. Is there a role for individual doctors to be advocating for the NHS totally. to the public or to even to their individual patients? Is, totally. that, is that ethically okay in a consultation to well, remind think... patients that... <laughs> Well, 
I think party politics is obviously off, off bounds. So, um, so, and I'm not a member of any political party. Um, but so, I, I think I would I would never be comfortable discussing that. I think most doctors would. But you know, certainly if people are asking, you know, you can never get an appointment in here these days. You know, it's okay to sort of discuss. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's really difficult. You're, you're absolutely correct. And here are some of the reasons. And I know the RCGP had done a big campaign about wanting more funding for primary care and stuff. And I think that's all good um, to get behind institutions that are campaigning for what you want. But ultimately, that these are system problems that need system solutions. One other thing you say in your book is that we need at least the option of paying more for the NHS we need. Um, do yeah. you think people would pay more tax? Yeah, I do. I think what people wouldn't pay more for is um, management consultancy, yet more reorganisations, um, you know, commissioning fees, um, you know, private companies going bust and getting payoffs from the NHS just to, to be nice to them. You know, I certainly don't think people should or would want to pay for that. But in terms of would people pay more for doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, healthcare assistants, um, bed, hospital beds, more GP appointments, I think people would pay more for that stuff that actually makes a difference. So uh, no political party is giving us that option at the moment. You know, there's there's no party saying we need to spend more in the NHS. And I think it'd be really good to have a party that said, OK, um, we're, we're listening. We're, we've decided we have to do things in a different way let's um, fund the NHS a bit more but let's be really careful about what that money goes on let's spend it on the things that actually make an evidence-based difference to patients well I think I'd vote for that and I suspect an awful lot of more people would as well what should the BMJ do about this? Well, I think you should have a proper campaign for the NHS, Richard. I, th- I think it'd be really good to start talking about what the NHS needs to do to survive. So I know that the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine have started talking about policy decisions, and I think that's fantastic. What we need to do, I think, is push all this forward and say, OK, look, we're getting good at evidence gathering. We're getting good at talking about what people value from, from outcomes, from healthcare research. We're getting good at talking about um, cost effectiveness. We're thinking more about opportunity costs. We've got so many people with so much expertise that use and work in and around the NHS. Why don't we actually start to use that valuable information? And instead of throwing it by the wayside, why don't we actually campaign on the basis of that? So I would like to see an evidence-based NHS based on the principles that it was set up to do. And I would like to see the BMJ pushing forward for this in a non-party political way. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Richard. (laughs) What's the topic of your next book? Oh, there's no more next book. It's going to be an erotic thriller. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) That's the second time you've told me that, though. There's definitely an idea for me. It's my standing joke. It's my standing joke, yeah. (laughs)